Welcome back to The Metabolomist. In this episode, I am joined by David Wishart of the University of Alberta in Canada. His group works on many fronts to develop the field of metabolomics. For example, developing bioinformatic tools and databases that are accessible to all online. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of databases and metabolite annotation for data interpretation, and we introduce the basis of why metabolomics is a powerful tool to be applied in the clinics. Welcome back to The Metabolomist, the podcast where we listen to the stories whispered by metabolomic data. I am Alice Limonciel, and this season we will examine the application of metabolomics in the clinics and the place of data interpretation in this field. Welcome to this episode of The Metabolomist. Today I'm joined by David Wishart. Welcome. Thank you very much, Alice. It's a pleasure to be here. You are a professor at the University of Alberta, and you're a very important member of the metabolomics community. You're involved in many different parts of the life of metabolomics. Maybe I let you explain a bit your background and how you got to work with metabolomics and what are your, your favorite activities that you have at the moment in the yeah. field. Sure. It's a long story. Maybe I can keep it short. But I got involved in metabolomics because I was trying to come up with a, a lecture topic about NMR that would be relevant to students in the pharmacy school. And in pharmacy, the focus is on small molecules. And for most of my life, I've been working in large molecules like proteins, and I used NMR to, to study proteins. So I was forced to do some quick research about small molecule NMR and applications to medicine and medical applications in general. And in the course of doing the lecture and the course of building up, um, I guess, the material for that, I realized that you could actually use some computers to simply solve a very challenging problem at the time, which is how do you deconvolute mixtures in an NMR spectrum? And so at the time that I was doing this, this is back in 1997, or maybe earlier, there wasn't even a name for metabolomics. It wasn't a term. And what we were doing, we just said, well, that's NMR. Or mm -hmm. At the time, I believe the term metabonomics started appearing maybe in 1998. And then 1999, I think the first paper on metabolomics was called we were calling it enomics, so chemistry and omics. Okay. And, and that actually led to a, a little spin-out company that's still mm -hmm. going, but it's spelled with an X instead of mm -hmm. ICS, and it does NMR-based tabulomics. But that's how it got started. That's how I got started in the area was just, you know, trying to find up a topic to talk to students about mm -hmm. uh, with small molecules. But it combined, I think, my interest in, in programming and computing along with spectroscopy. Mm -hmm. And over the years, then I've had to learn how to do GCMS and LCMS. And I'll learn a lot of analytical chemistry that I, I never really took in school. So I, I guess I'm sort of a, a backdoor chemist that came in it the wrong wrong way. <laughs> and your, your group is involved in many different sides of the work in metabolomics. So you, you talked about the measurements but you're also very active in, let's say, cataloging metabolites. We will get to this later in the podcast, so with databases, but also by informatic tools, you've contributed to, to creating and sharing a lot of tools with the community. So are there specific activities that you have or that your group has that you maybe want to mention now, like the main places where, where your group is visible in the community at the moment? 
Sure. So we have a mixed lab. So we call a wet lab and a dry lab. So Mm -hmm. the dry lab is the computational part and the wet lab is the people running the instruments, but also doing sample prep, um, cell culture or bacterial work or sample collection. Uh, So we've got, you know, molecular biologists, we've got analytical chemists, Mm -hmm. we've got computer programmers, we even have an engineering team that helps with fabricating and designing things. It's a real mixed group, and the idea is all of them are working to solve each other's problems, because we all have problems to mm-hmm. solve. Our dry lab does a lot of database development and a lot of software development to make untargeted metabolomics a little easier, but also to inform the community about what are involved in metabolites. Our wet lab group works primarily on targeted metabolomics, mm-hmm. um, And that's something I've always believed is important because it's the best way to quantify. And Mm -hmm. I come from a background in NMR where we always quantify. Uh, And so it struck me as very odd that that a lot of people in the metabolomics community weren't too concerned about measuring concentrations. I think, again, it's coming through metabolomics from a different perspective. Mm It's something that we recognized early on that there really wasn't a good collection of information about metabolites. And so that led us to establish these databases. The human metabolome database was one. And then to develop software to help with the analysis. That was MetaboAnalyst. And we wanted to do this on the web to make it really accessible to people. So both of those have done very well. Um, but we've created other resources, I think, that have also helped standardize things in the community, help inform people in the community. And I think that's been a real theme for our work is, is to try and democratize metabolomics make it accessible, make it more amenable to people. And that's from the software and database side. I think from the instrumental and wet bench side, we run a a service facility now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's become a national facility in Canada. It's called the Metabolomics Innovation Center or TMIC. And that too is again intended to, to democratize metabolomics, making people, their research accessible to metabolomics mm-hmm. resources, because it's an expensive business to get into. Yeah. And as you mentioned, this is also something we, we mentioned in the first season of the podcast. Metabolomics is really a, a multi-expertise kind of technique. You really need to, to be good at completely different topics to be able to run a whole metabolomic study from beginning to end. And so I guess for someone who is interested in metabolomics, but doesn't have the resources or is beginning, it's good to have this kind of facilities, like make, for example, where you have all these expertises already there for you, and then you don't have to be an expert at everything to begin. That's right. That's no, it, to, it, it, to it takes help. the village, as you yeah, say, it's sad because it is, yeah, it is very multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. You know, no one person, I think, knows all of the analytical methods, mm-hmm. uh, chromatography, GCMS, LCMS, ICPMS, NMR. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot to learn, and most people never get that experience in, in a single PhD or two of or course. three PhDs. Yeah. So it helps to have these core facilities. Do you also help with the interpretations of the biological interpretation? Do you have people working exclusively on this as well? We do. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges in metabolomics. It's, it's getting easier to collect the data, but to mm-hmm. interpret or process the data is, is more challenging. You know, the role in developing metaboanalyst was to help make the statistical analysis mm-hmm. more easier, but that's it's not what you get really in terms of the biological interpretation. Mm-hmm. And that requires you know reading. It requires a better understanding. We've been trying to develop uh, pathway resources that would help with that, trying to develop biomarker resources that would also help with the interpretation. Uh, and I think that 
the tendency in a lot of metabolomic studies is to sort of just stop at the statistical end and say, yes. I've done, mm-hmm. and to not really explore the biological side. And that's where the real, really interesting things happen. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. And I forgot to mention this before we started the recording, but um, I don't know if you heard about the story principle. It's a book that I've been working on. So you've maybe seen it. In that book, I talk about like five steps to to get people to the interpretation and exactly for what you said, that it doesn't stop at the statistics, it doesn't stop at the list of what goes up and what goes down. And to really understand what's going on or to make use of the metabolomics, you have to get to that extra step to understanding the biology. I'm also very interested in bioinformatic tools that help us get closer. It never gets exactly completely to the end story, but it can bring like larger bricks of the house that you try to build when you build the story. That's right. I think that's a really good point. Science is storytelling. Mm-hmm. Writing a journal article is a story. Um, of course. I think the other part too, which is even beyond the interpretation, and this is something that we've seen particularly in the clinic or applications to consumer-based systems, you tell them the story and then they say, well, now what? <laughs> yes. What do I do? And so it's not just trying to explain what's going on. It's also trying to say, how do you fix it? Mm-hmm. And that's another challenge, I think, which is perhaps even more compelling. About your experience with metabolomics, I was wondering, is there something that you wish you had known before you started working with metabolomics that maybe you learned over 20 more years working with it? That <laughs> if you'd only known that before, that would have been especially like not necessarily something that we've discovered with new technologies, but something that as a beginner you don't know and then you figure it out later and that maybe people could benefit from if they are now starting their work with metabolomics. Yeah, when we originally started, uh, it was like in 2006, it was called the Human Metabolome Project, which mm-hmm. led to the development of the Human Metabolome Database. At the time when we started the project, we thought there were around 600 metabolites in the human body. And that was what was listed on all the encyclopedias and books. <laughs> and so we thought this is going to be you know, pretty simple. And maybe mm-hmm. at most we might get a thousand. And you know, in the first year, we already were up to 2,000. Now, you know, something, you know, 17 years later, we're about 250,000. Mm-hmm. That apparently only covers 5% of the, the true or known metabolomes. So mm-hmm. if we multiply that by an, another 20 fold, so we're maybe about 5 million compounds. So that was, I wish I'd known that it was going <laughs> to be so big. It, the metabolome universe is so much larger than, mm-hmm. say, the protein universe or the genome universe. But it's an interesting point. Then what would you say to people who are beginning with this and they're thinking, okay, how many metabolites can I measure in one study, whether it's targeted or untargeted, like it's going to be maximum a few thousand if I'm lucky. How is that going to be relevant to the giganticness of the metabolome? Where, where should I do this? Yeah, I think there's two extremes that we're looking at. I mean, one is to try and identify everything mm-hmm. as, and assuming everything is important. But, you know, it's like looking at a lawn. Like, is every blade of grass important? Mm -hmm. Or is the fact that the lawn is green or brown important? Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think as as scientists, we're often curious about the detail, um, but you still want to be able to see the the broader picture. I think one of the things that's emerged over the last 15 years or 10 years is that there's a common set of metabolites that are changed in disease. Um, There are obviously some compounds, particularly compounds that we call the exposome that are 
causative for disease. And some of these are at remarkably low levels. And so there's a compelling case to be made to say, yes, we need to measure these obscure things that we didn't know were there because maybe in fact they're causing large numbers of conditions. So I can see it from both sides, but from the perspective of, you know, how is it impacting on the body or physiology? Maybe there's only about four or 500 key actors that we need to really look at and measure. I would emphasize that we need to measure those, you know, accurately and quantitatively, but it might be that there's a smaller set that we can work with to see what, what has changed and how it's changed. If we want to understand what is causing the change, then in fact, maybe this desire to measure everything uh, will be important. Mm -hmm. Time will tell. Mm -hmm. What you mentioned about using quantitative measurements is also really important in the context we're interested today. So for application in the clinics, um, you had a talk last year that is also on the on the Biocritics YouTube channel where you discuss this, where you make a strong point that these measurements should be quantitative if we want to have a chance to have them be useful in the clinics. We will come back to this at the end of the episodes, the clinical applications of metabolomics, but for multiple applications, this is something that makes a huge difference, yeah, I think. That absolutely. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So let's discuss a bit more HMDB and the different databases that you've been building over the years. So you mentioned that HMDB comes from the, the Human Metabolome Project, where you had a number of groups that were working together on first identifying metabolites and then cataloging them. And then you ended up having something much bigger than you expected. This is always interesting because also when we use omics, we want to look at everything. This was the same for all omics. And then I guess there was a shock at some point when, when you figured out what you set out to do? <laughs> yes. Do you have any regrets? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it keeps you busy. At least you're, you're still employed when you have a bigger project than you expected. But it, yeah, it's sort of like you, know, you start off with a meal thinking it's only a single course dinner and find out it's a 12 course dinner. Mm -hmm. um, when we started the Human Metabolome Project, we thought it was more contained, more constrained, and mm -hmm. that there was, you know, it was solvable and reachable. But I remember going to a meeting, I think it was in North Carolina, where someone highlighted the fact that metabolomics is probably more complicated than we expected, in part because we eat other metabolomes. And, and mm -hmm. then a light bulb kind of went off in my head and said, you know, mm -hmm. uh-oh, uh, <laughs> that's very true, because yeah. in fact, we eat plants, and plants have a very different metabolome mm -hmm. than, than humans, and we eat a variety of other prepared foods. And so these things have chemicals added to them. Yes. And, you know, just a matter of doing a quick Google search and realizing that there's, you know, 5,000 compounds added to foods, and the list of plant phytochemicals was over 300,000 listed in the natural products databases. And I just had a sinking feeling that we we're going to be very busy for a very long time. You know, the intent of the Human Metabolism Project is, and the database itself is to try and capture that information, make mm -hmm. it more accessible, make it usable from uh, the perspective of the metabolomics community, make it searchable, and, and give, I think, kind of a, a standard hub, the same way that, you know, the GenBank has helped the genetics and molecular biology, mm -hmm. the same way that the Protein Data Bank has helped with structural biology. Does it have to do with the nomenclature, with having a nice way of naming things and describing things is it, or what is for you the added value of having databases that collect everything in one place i think 
Part of it is standardization. We spend a lot of time identifying the different ways of naming chem- chemicals. Uh, there's most of them have, you know, a dozen different synonyms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we also wanted to um, consolidate information that was scattered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this centralization is a way of at least getting that all in one place so you can look at it. Moving it to the web meant that you, know, you didn't have to have a big book published. Um, mm-hmm. If we had it as a book, it would be, you know, I don't know, 50,000 pages or something. So making it web accessible makes it more practical. It also makes it more searchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can, you know, search not only by names, but you can also search by structures. And that's very easy, especially if you're a chemist, you think in yeah. terms of structure. But also allowed us to put in diagrams like pathways. It allowed mm-hmm. us to put in spectra so that people could compare things. So the visual data has become increasingly important in the database. I think there's you know other evolutions, revolutions that might be happening. I think the development of natural language processing mm-hmm. and chatbots. It, it might be a way of allowing more specific queries to the database and giving you textual answers rather than read and read and read. That would be great. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So it's certainly a way of evolving databases so that they are topic specific and, mm-hmm. and more interactive. And I think that's one of the things that we'll be trying with with our databases over the next year or so. Are there uses that have been made of those databases that surprised you, things you didn't expect? Yeah, I think there's always been a lot of surprises. Yeah. Originally, we, we started making uh, a list not only of metabolites, but we also wanted to track the drugs. And then we also wanted to start tracking the foods. And so one database was called Drug Bank, and mm-hmm. the other one was FoodDB, and then another one is Human Metabolism Database. The Drug Bank, which was a small database, became incredibly popular, and we didn't know why. And then we found out that what people were most interested in was the drug target information that we put in, mm-hmm. because that hadn't been put in in any data resource and people were using it to identify new drug targets and to repurpose drugs and so that was oh I didn't know you could do that Mm -hmm. Um, but that's grown into I think a a very big resource for the drug industry HMDB a lot of people have used it for applications and in compound classification in uh, reinterpreting mass spectra in ways that we never mm-hmm. expected, uh, defining what is biologically or drug relevant or a natural product resource or what is a natural product. Yeah, we're, we're surprised at the ideas that people come up with with the databases. And I think that just sort of reinforces the need for putting it out there and letting people discover new ways of interpreting the data. Mm-hmm. Recently, you, you published with other co-authors a, a comment in Nature Metabolism, saying so you're, you're going towards a Rosetta Stone for metabolomics with the recommendations to overcome inconsistent metabolite nomenclatures. Do you have a few key points that maybe you could tell us about? Because this is also something we discussed on the podcast a couple of times, like it can be difficult to make sure that you exploit your metabolomics to the fullest when you're not sure that you're actually naming your metabolites in a way that is understood by all the tools that you want to use. So what were the main points that you wanted to discuss in that paper? Well, I think, I mean, one of the more striking things that's emerged is that there are several cases where people have rediscovered the same metabolite Mm -hmm. uh, over multiple years. And existed under multiple names. And so people didn't realize these things had been around or were discovered for certain applications or 
people were making claims that they were the first to discover it, only to find out, you know, years afterwards oh, that someone else had, had rediscovered it, you know, many years before. So this is a problem, and it's a, a problem with nomenclature. It's a problem uh, with how people use traditional names in the literature, mm-hmm. and there are solutions to using names and, and some of these are using things like inchy keys mm-hmm. or standard unique identifiers uh, you could also use identifiers from databases um, mm-hmm. you can do structure searches to see if your molecule resembles something else that has already been been known and so making those things available to like a Rosetta Stone to help with even the translation of, of the compound name to what it really is, or a translator, uh, a chemical translator would help. But I still think it's it's critical for the journals to adopt this idea of using standard identifiers when compounds are listed or named. And that way um, we're all on the same page. We're all mm-hmm. speaking the same language. And I guess what, some level the Rosetta Stone did when mm-hmm. we were trying to convert hieroglyphs into a language we could understand. Yeah. To conclude on the topic of the databases, how could someone contribute to, for example, to HMDB? Do you take inputs from the outside and someone who's interested, who maybe is doing a lot of identification of peaks or also maybe writing their PhD thesis on this metabolite, and then they have so many interesting literature references about it, for example, and functions and stuff. Like, do you take input from the outside and how does that work? We do. We'd like to have more or we'd like to hear more um, Mm -hmm. from people about either corrections they'd suggest Mm -hmm. or additions that they'd like to see, improvements that could be done. We have, more by accident than design, started taking submissions on metabolites. So we've bringing in mass spectra depositions, NMR spectral depositions, and more recently, infrared spectroscopy mm-hmm. depositions. And people write directly to the database, or how does that work? Well, essentially, they will write to us and say, can we deposit it? And then mm-hmm. uh, we'll kind of busily work away. We have been developing deposition tools um, for a different project, but I think we've realized that, that those deposition tools would work just fine for the HMDB. So uh, we're thinking that it should or could be possible for people to deposit new compounds or new compound ideas, spectra associated with those compounds. Uh, That's something that may be coming in the next year or so. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then that may open the opportunity for people to build on the database or contribute to the database as scientists. Great. Another topic I'm really interested in and that we've also talked a lot on the podcast is different bioinformatic tools to analyze and understand metabolomics. Of course, we can talk about metabolomics. It's always actually the first tool that I recommend to people who begin because it really has a lot in one place. So it's a, it's a great place to start. So do you want to say a few words about metabolomics and maybe do you want to tell us if you have favorite bioinformatic tools, what are your favorite ways to take data and bring it to the biological understanding? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, metabolomics is sort of my go-to tool as well. It's really easy to use. And it is, it's, it's great. <laughs> um, and it's continued to be developed by Jeff Shah over at McGill now. 
Um, and it, you know, it's always nice to have, I think, you know, students start out in your lab and, and if they really enjoy their work, then they can kind of move on with that and, and take that ownership. Um, I think the intent of Metabolonist is to help you with the statistical analysis. Mm. And, and there's a, a bit of biological interpretation it can provide you with, but not quite to the degree that I think people need. Mm-hmm. We've been working on another route over the last few years through something called PathBank or mm-hmm. Small Molecule Pathway Database. And what we're trying to do is capture more information relating to the physiological effects, the association with, with metabolites in pathways to their proteins and enzymes, cells and organs and organelles that they're located in. Mm-hmm. And to help extend, I think, the, the biological interpretation beyond just simply this one's up and this one's down. There's really utility in metabolism for biomarker identification. But again, that's that's an end in itself. There's if you want to understand the, the biology behind those biomarkers, again, it still requires moving towards pathways. Now, pathways can only take you so far. I, as a rule, when I'm you know, noticing metabolite changes and we'll look at maybe some pathways, but I, I usually use the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge these days is the literature is so vast that it's it's hard to find the things you need. We've been working on an ontology for metabolomics. It's called Chem Font. Mm-hmm. And we're using both the data in our databases as well as manual annotation, as well as natural language processing to expand what's in ChemFont. Mm-hmm. Ontologies are used by people and machines and they're machine readable. And the gene ontology in, in molecular biology has made a huge difference. So we wanted to have an ontology for metabolites and chemistry. And this would allow people to do more meaningful interpretation of their data. Uh, the idea is to have an ontology with what we call triples, an object, a verb, and a subject um, mm-hmm. that gives you information. You know, X does this to Y, or mm-hmm. A does this to C, or comes from C, or mm-hmm. by generating these facts or statements with references, it would hopefully allow people to you know, say one minute at a time mm-hmm. that they're reading the literature, but then they can also start synthesizing ideas or using the computer to help synthesize ideas. Mm-hmm. And so the intent of having this ontology, combining it with smart language tools or large language models like ChatGPT, hopefully would give people the ability to uh, extract more useful data in the biology about their metabolite sets. Yeah, and so getting every time a little bit closer to what the human can do yeah. so that the human has less work to do that could be automated. It's always the the dream is that, especially when there's so much literature now that you can have a tool that helps you to cut through the weeds and then yeah. extract the beautiful things that pre-read it for you and then you can do the final step yourself. Yes. But you always have to do the final step yourself. Though. It's, yeah, no, I think ultimately you still have to yeah. wait. You know, here's this, yes. this I'm seeing mm-hmm. three references that say this mm-hmm. and two references that say the opposite. What do exactly. I need to do? What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, but the, you probably answered that question just now because I was going to ask you, are there tools that you wish existed? Maybe this is one of them. <laughs> Or it's a bus to exist, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I guess my my role in life is to sort of look at problems and try and find solutions to them. And uh, metabolomics has lots of problems. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of solutions that are still needing to be developed. And part of it has come from the scale. It, it was, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was going to be such a large, unwieldy set of, of compounds that we had to work with. 
I didn't realize it was going to be so complex and that metabolism isn't just simply catabolism and mm-hmm. anabolism. You know, metabolites have a role in signaling, metabolites have a role in, in health, they have a role in disease, they have, you know, triggers at, 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 at so many different levels. You know, before I started, I didn't, we only knew about oncogenes. Now there are oncometabolites. Mm-hmm. There are a variety of endogenous toxins, uremic toxins, which seem to lie mm-hmm. at the root of most chronic diseases things that we just didn't know 20 years ago when we started in this journey. It's always surprising. Mm-hmm. That's what keeps it interesting. For exactly. Me. Yeah. And this takes us to our last topic. I wanted to discuss with you, of course, because it's the topic of the podcast this year, the applications of metabolomics in the clinic or to clinical research. You're involved in, in projects that target the application to the clinic's of metabolomics. Um, do you want to tell us first maybe about the different projects you're working on at the moment or things you can talk about, of course, but are there diseases or specific types of applications where you really see a promise for metabolomics or where you're working to, to use it in the clinical setup? We often underestimate the role of metabolomics already in the clinical setting. Mm-hmm. I mean, we call it clinical chemistry or clinical chemists don't want to call it metabolomics. My first encounter after you know, discovering that you could use NMR for mixtures was dealing with some inborn errors in metabolism. And that's when we first applied these and looked at urine samples of, of kids who had serious metabolic disorders. And it was quite striking just to see the differences and how these compounds could be picked up. Of course, these days we don't use NMR, it's mostly LCMS. But this is one of the, the great wins from the perspective of metabolomics. We have I'm not sure, like, is it 100,000 CMS tests done a week around the world for newborn screening? There are more people who've had and will have metabolomic tests than will ever have genetic (laughs) tests. And it saves lives. It makes a profound difference. So metabolomics is already in the clinic. Metabolomics is already having a profound impact in, in people's lives. I think, you know, at the beginning of life, it's playing a role. I think metabolomics can also play a role particularly say in midlife or towards the end of life as we try and identify some of the things that scare us all. So things like Mm -hmm. cancer or Alzheimer's or other conditions, diabetes. And I think there's a real role for finding the first trends towards those. So before diabetes, there's pre-diabetes. Before Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's, there's mild cognitive impairment. Before sort of full-blown cancer, there's stage one cancers. And so my focus over the last number of years is to look at at identifying metabolomic biomarkers that are predictive or that identify the earliest stages of disease. Because I think the, the role for metabolomics can be in prevention. Genes tell you what you might have metabolites tell you what you do have. Mm -hmm. And so being able to monitor over a person's life course and what changes allows you to pick up conditions before they manifest. And and I think this is the role that metabolomics really needs to play. And whether you call it in vitro diagnostics uh, or predictive diagnostics or preventative medicine, I think metabolomics can play a real role in the shift from reactive medicine to preventative medicine. I think it can play a real role in wellness and health as opposed to treating disease. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see people use metabolomics um, 
more from a, I guess, different from the standard diagnostic test, one mm-hmm. chemical, one disease, <laughs> to more like hundreds of chemicals to assess your general health. Because uh, we are complicated organisms and our health is mm-hmm. also made up of many components. And I think metabolomics gives you that opportunity. So yeah, our, our focus is, as I say, predictive or early stage clinical markers. Uh, in all cases, it's really important to have quantitative values because without those, you can't translate them into reference values. You can't compare them to reference values. You can't translate them into clinical diagnostic tests. You can't use them in a, any kind of medical field. And so um, this is why we've always worked in quantitative targeted metabolomics. It's made it very easy for the discoveries we've made to translate into clinical applications. In that regard, I think it's been quite productive for us. You mentioned having, let's say, 100 metabolites for one disease. So does that mean you would favor more patterns or like larger signatures as biomarker for maybe more for complex diseases than... I think from a diagnostic perspective, you want as few or small number of biomarkers. It makes Mm -hmm. it more useful from a testing perspective. Mm -hmm. But uh, the concept with metabolomics is to go to more than one marker per Mm -hmm. disease. So you could have two or three or four, Mm -hmm. and that gives you greater specificity and sensitivity. But from a health monitoring perspective, I would view it as important to be able to look at several hundred metabolites at a time Mm -hmm. because you don't know what someone's going to get. And so if you're forcing someone to do a hundred blood tests, to do a hundred different single marker tests, I mean, you'll leave them dry. (laughs) So if you could just, you know, with a drop of blood measure four or 500 um, compounds, which are of high value, which are reflective of most of the common disorders, then you have a way of measuring health, not necessarily measuring a specific disease, but measuring health. And that's why that broad coverage, I think, is is useful from the wellness perspective, whereas from the disease diagnostic, you just want to measure a couple metabolites mm-hmm. at a time. And maybe also it helps because if you have a single metabolite, it might be changing for different reasons as well in a given individual. And this takes us also to this idea of the the variability between different individuals. That is something that sometimes people see as an issue with metabolomics. So that also for a given individual, if I eat something different, like I might have different levels of amino acids, which are used for many things. But also variability is something that can be very useful and that can give us a lot of information. And that is the reason why also uh, metabolomics is a great tool for precision medicine, maybe more interesting than other types of omics. Um, You've written about precision medicine and metabolomics quite a lot. What's your position on this? Why is metabolomics interesting for precision medicine and what works from metabolomics and what maybe makes it more difficult? Yeah, I think, I mean, you brought up the point about variability. There is a fair bit of human variability. And I think this is from the cross-sectional side. When we look at people just at one time point, we see variability. Mm -hmm. But over a longitudinal level, we don't vary a whole lot Mm -hmm. from our, our set points. And so I think the central advantage of metabolomics is this ability to measure over time. 
and to measure those changes over time and to have a reference point potentially and say, you know, today I'm very mm-hmm. healthy and that's my reference point. Or if you're in your twenties, that's probably when you're healthiest. And so mm-hmm. that's a good reference point. And mm-hmm. as things drift up or down, good or bad, that's something you can track. Your genome doesn't change. Maybe you're bored with a bad genome or a good genome, but it, it's just uh, hard to know when you, when those things might suddenly lead to a problem, uh, mm-hmm. or maybe it's just a threat you live with for your entire life and it doesn't happen. So I think from precision medicine perspective, the fact that the metabolome can be detected the first days of life, that's when we do newborn screening, Mm -hmm. uh, to the end of life, allows us to see how things have evolved. I think its ability to predict conditions or prognosticate makes it unique. Proteomics can help, but the advantage that that metabolomics has over proteomics right now is that its um, metabolomics is much more quantitative. Mm-hmm. Uh, the assays are much cheaper. They're faster to perform. And when you look at the the number of biomarkers that are used in the clinic, the overwhelming number are small molecules because of the fact that they're quantitatively measurable, fast, reproducible, mm-hmm. and that gives an advantage. ELISA tests are reproducible within a lab, but not across labs, and vary tremendously with batches of antibodies and mm-hmm. other conditions. So that metabolomics, you know, it's it's the spawn of analytical chemistry. Analytical chemists are focused on not only accurately identifying, but accurately quantifying things. If we remember where we came from as analytical chemistry, I think it, it opens the door for much more useful clinical work and, and much more precise measurements for precision mm-hmm. medicine. Besides the newborn screening, uh, have you already seen from your work seeing new applications of metabolomics for diagnostic or screening? Are there already things out there for those diseases where the work is still a bit difficult? Like, for example, to detect a a disease a few years before it's really too late? Do we already have good examples of the application of metabolomics for this? We have applications, I think, that are published, but not in use. Yeah. And I think this is a real problem for the field of metabolomics and for the field of medicine. Um, and why aren't they used, do you think? Is it a regulatory problem? or? I think it could be. Uh, I think there's also an inertia. Uh, it's very expensive to mm-hmm. go from, say, a discovery or a publication to a validated biomarker that is used in the clinic. The funding systems that we have don't really encourage people to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a scientist, your worth is measured by your publications, not by the number of biomarkers or even the number of drugs you've developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, biomarker identification isn't a highly profitable business. Uh, some cases, if you identify a biomarker that is better and cheaper, you upset a lot of people because the people who are making a lot of money from the more expensive biomarker are, are not happy. I think there's a lot of constraints that undermine the ability to translate really useful biomarkers into practice. And some of them are, are structural and institutional, and it's a real shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there's things we can do to change that, but if there are funding agencies listening, it would be nice if they appreciated the importance or created mechanisms to help translate biomarkers, because without biomarkers, precision medicine really isn't possible. Yeah. Maybe we need a special task force for this. Yes. To push metabolomics forward. Then I only asked you 
to think about your favorite metabolite a few minutes ago. So uh, have you found one? And can you tell us why it would be your favorite metabolite of the day? Because I guess you have a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's 250,000 to choose from. One that I found really fascinating um, that surprises me every day is the largest amino acid. It's, it's tryptophan. Mm-hmm. And it was the only one I could remember the, the single letter for because it begins with my my last name. Um, <laughs> that helps. <laughs> but it's, it's one that has... Uh, I think, you know, remarkable roles in that it plays so many regulatory and signaling roles in the body. So it's not just simply a proteogenic amino acid. It's it's an amino acid that's used in controlling the immune system. It's an amino acid that plays a role in mood and neuronal signaling. It's an amino acid that plays a role in the formation of melanin and melatonin and, and pigmentation. It seems to play such a central role, but it also, not only is it a good amino acid, it can also be turned into something bad. And the conversion of tryptophan into indole and indoxyl and indoxyl sulfate, which is a pretty serious uremic toxin, now seems to have a role in anxiety and depression and chronic kidney disease and probably Alzheimer's disease. The fact that you can have a, a single molecule, but its use and utility spans so many things that it's both good and bad, um, it's fascinating to me. And, and I think it embodies what I think we'll find out more about most metabolites, yeah. that they have all these roles, and they're not just simply fuel or they're not just simply building blocks absolutely i completely agree and probably the next revolution or it's already started but you you started with expecting a few hundred metabolites and found out there are much more and probably now we think each metabolite has a few function but then we're going to figure out that it's all linked together and everything can do anything if it's in the right context so exactly Exactly. this is going to be fun especially (laughs) for people who are interested in interpretation yeah (laughs) yeah Thank you very much for taking part in this podcast. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Alice. Thank you for joining us in this discussion. I hope that this episode gave you new insights and ideas on how to plan, conduct, and communicate your own metabolomic projects, and that you're excited for the future clinical applications of metabolomics. If you'd like to continue this journey with us, make sure to register for the Metabolomist email list on the podcast webpage, themetabolomist.com. If you want to learn more about how data interpretation is done, check out my book on the story principle at biocrates.com slash the story principle. For regular news on metabolomics and data interpretation, you can follow me, Alice Limonciel, on LinkedIn, where I post on metabolites, analysis strategies, data processing tools, and more. And make sure to check out our other podcast episodes on the Metabolomist website.